Hello and welcome to episode 27 of Lime Ninja Radio. I'm your host, McKay Rippey. With me in the studio is our producer and my daughter, Aurora. Hi, everybody. And before we get started, I just want to talk a little bit about last episode with Dr. Ahern. That episode went viral on Facebook, and within 72 hours, it had gotten in front of 15,000 people. That's just a ridiculous number in a short period of time. And I think it really speaks to Dr. Ahern's message, and she's such a credible voice for the Lyme community. It's really a pleasure to interview her, and uh, hopefully we'll be able to have her back on the show in not too distant future. And I just want to say thank you to everybody who was able to make that happen, which is all y'all. So Yes, thanks. <laughs> and I don't know if you know this or not, but Aurora and I live with uh, her sister, twin sister, and my wife. And we're on a small farm in central New York. And those of you who have been around farms that I'll know that uh, from time to time, farmers have adventures. And Aurora had a farming adventure. And why don't you tell us about it? Basically, a calf got out. Yes, we have a very small herd. We have 12 animals, and three of those are little cats. Well, little. They're the size of giant dogs. Yeah. <laughs> but they're, they're little calves compared to their big mamas. Yes, they are. So I was inside trying to stay out of the wind, and a very kind neighbor stopped by and let me know that a that one of our calves was on the wrong side of the fence. So I had to go put on my dad's boots and run out there in the mud and the rain and the wind and try to herd this little, little, that this calf that came up to my chest uh, back under the fence where she belonged with the rest of her family. And were you successful? I was indeed successful. And was, what happened to the electric fence that's supposed to keep her out of the road? Well... Let's just say I finished putting her back on the right side of it, and then I went and I turned it back on. Oh, that's exciting. <laughs> yeah. I wonder who forgot to turn it on. <laughs> anyway, this calf's name is Sienna, and Sienna is the red-headed stepchild of the herd. She has blonder hair than everybody else and longer hair than everybody else, and she has an independent streak unlike any of the other Red Devons that we have, so... The my father-in-law who owns the herd uh, calls her an independent cuss. So our independent cuss went for walkabout on Peck Road. Yes, she did. Yes, but all's well that ends well. Anyway, let's get right into it. Tell us a little bit about this week's guest, Dr. Nicola McFadgen. All right. Dr. Nicola McFadgen is the founder and medical director of Restore Medicine, an integrative medical center based in San Diego, California. Having done her naturopathic training and completed her Bachelor of Health Sciences in Australia, she moved to the United States and obtained her Doctorate of Naturopathic Medicine, starting a private practice soon thereafter. She's the author of The Lyme Diet, Nutritional Strategies for Healing from Lyme Disease, as well as a chapter in Connie Stratzheim's book, Insights into Lyme Disease Treatment, 13 Lyme Literate Healthcare Practitioners Share, share Their Healing Strategies. She conducts clinics in Australia twice a year, helping Lyme sufferers navigate the testing and treatment options for tick-borne illness, and is the medical advisor to the Lyme Disease Association of Australia. All right, Aurora, thanks very much. And here's our interview with Dr. McFadgen. And I should mention that since she's written her book, she's gotten married and she has a new 
surname, and that's Ducharme. And you'll hear us discuss that a bit at the beginning of the interview. Nicola, it's McKay Rippey. Hello, how are you? Quite well, thank you. So how do you pronounce Ducharme or Ducarme? It's Ducharme. Ducharme. My French is no good. (laughs) 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 But that's a little different than McFadzine. McFadzine? Yeah, it's actually, it's some improvement on McFadzine. Well, and that's pronounced McFadzine as if there was a G in it. So it's all a bit... And my, my my first name is Mackay, but nobody in here in the States calls it Mackay, so cheers. Yeah, right. I see I would have said Mackay. Yeah, well you're properly brought up. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's funny. That's a it's a family name on my dad's side. Uh, nice to meet you, by the way. Yes, you too. Yes. And um it's funny because my birth certificate, it says McKay Rippy, And then back in the typewriter days, it's X'd out. And what happened was it got time to baptize me. And they said, oh, my goodness, we didn't give him a Christian name. So it's underneath the X's is Paul McKay Rippy, But nobody has ever – substitute teachers and policemen have called me Paul. That's about it. Gosh. That's wild, isn't it? Yeah. Name, names always have stories. Yes, Exactly. That's funny. So I'd love to talk to you for a bit about your book and Lyme disease and diet and all the other things you're doing for people. Yeah, absolutely. Terrific. Can can we start with what's a naturopath? (laughs) So a naturopath, so I'm a naturopathic physician or a naturopathic doctor and in our um, in our world, I mean, we have all the same training as allopathic MDs in terms of anatomy and physiology and biochemistry, etc. Um, but we are also trained in the natural modalities such as nutrition and herbal medicine and homeopathy and things of that nature. So, I mean, one definition could be, you know, a practitioner who uses more natural modalities rather than medication. Mm-hmm. But I think actually even more important than that, it's a philosophy of medicine. So our philosophy um, sort of guides us to treat the whole person and to find the underlying cause of disease, not just try and relieve symptoms. Um, and so there's, you know, there's several philosophies involved in naturopathic medicine that really are the core of, of our kind of medicine. Um, that how people typically recognize us is by using more of the natural modalities. That's maybe the best explanation I've heard yet. (laughs) Thank you. You're welcome. And then licensing, because I know I'm in New York State, and I know in New York State uh, naturopaths aren't licensed. Right. And there's actually a little bit of a distinction between the term naturopath and the term naturopathic doctor. Oh, thank you. Straighten me out. Naturopaths. Um, aren't necessarily qualified at the level of a doctoral degree. They can have other training. Like, for example, in Australia, um, there are naturopaths. There are no naturopathic doctors. That qualification just doesn't exist. Mm -hmm. Naturopaths can still be very well trained. They can still be very, very um, competent practitioners. Um, But they will never be able to be licensed as naturopathic physicians, just because it's a different level of education. Uh, I see. Naturopathic physicians are licensed in some states in the U.S. 
So I'm here in California. We are definitely licensed here, and we have a great scope of practice. Um, Washington, Oregon, Montana, Arizona, Connecticut, Maine, New Hampshire. I mean, there's a bunch of states around that do license naturopathic physicians. Mm-hmm. And that allows us, you know, scope of practice to, in some states, bill insurance, in some states, prescribe medication. Um, I do a lot of antibiotic prescribing for my Lyme patients, even though I generally sort of work in a more integrative philosophy. Right. Um, there are definitely cases where antibiotics are, are warranted. So I, thankfully in California, I have the ability to do that. That was going to be my follow-up question. Yeah, and it's very state-dependent. Yes. Um, California naturopaths cannot bill insurance, hmm. but we can prescribe medications. In Connecticut, you know, naturopathic doctors can bill insurance, but can't prescribe anything, even B12 or hormones or anything. So oh, really? it depends on the state. And but uh, So my training is as an acupuncturist. And, right. Uh, the, the insurance thing is a two-edged sword. So oh, absolutely. on one hand, yeah. it enables access. On the other hand, it can limit your practice if, if you're not careful. Oh, look, absolutely. And I mean, to be honest with you, I'm quite relieved that I'm not put in the decision of, you know, having to decide whether to bill insurance or not. It's, it's just a, it's a non, non-starter over here. Um, however, you know, if I was able to bill insurance, I wouldn't want to. <laughs> I don't know if I would or not, but yes. I wouldn't want to. <laughs> oh, it's, it's, I, I've made the decision not to, and I did this a long time ago, and that was my early uh, experiences with insurance companies was not good. Yeah. And uh, I, for a while, I was working at a chiropractor office, and he confided in me. He said, "You know, I've I just started my my practice about a year ago. He he left his mentor and started his own office. And he said, even in this one year, I'm owed enough that I could pay off my mortgage or my home if yeah. the, if the insurance companies would just pay me what what's owed me." Yeah. I know. I think it's, it, you know, it's a really troubled system here. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think especially treating Lyme, because, you know, 99% of my practice is Lyme disease at this point. Really? Um, I think in treating Lyme, because it is so controversial, and we are, you know, sort of stepping out of some of the standards of care as, you know, in terms of the Infectious Disease Society, etc. cetera. Yes. Um, you know, it just sort of makes it all that much more complicated and tricky. I'd rather be able to treat freely according to what I think is best for the patient without having to worry about, you know, who's going to pay the bills, not pay the bills, come knocking on my door. Yes. Rather not have those things hanging over my head. Yes. And no matter what we try to do, we end up uh, working for who pays us. Well, and I know doctors, some of them who treat Lyme, who do work in the insurance model. And, you know, patients go because they need to. I mean, Obviously, Lyme is a very, very expensive illness. Mm-hmm. If there's a Lyme literate practitioner who takes their insurance, of course they're going to do that. But even so, they often find that they're not getting the the length of appointment that they need based on the complexity of their illness and what they're experiencing. Absolutely. So I think the model just doesn't really work for a chronic illness like Lyme that requires so much time and so much um attention to detail. You know, you can't bust through a Lyme disease follow-up in seven minutes. <laughs> no, you happen. cannot. You cannot. You certainly cannot. So really, the naturopathic physician is then the perfect combination of skills, the way you're able to practice out there. I think 
so. And especially in a state like California where we do have prescriptive authority. Yeah. Because it's not only, I mean, some patients I work with antibiotics, but it's even just being able to do IV therapy and give them vitamins and minerals. It's being able to prescribe hormones when they need thyroid support or um, B12 injections. You know, there's a lot of things that are under prescription. And now DMSA is for heavy metal toxicity for yes. mercury. Yep. That used to be a an over-the-counter, quote-unquote, but um, now it's on prescription as well. So it does give us a lot of options that wouldn't be available otherwise. Um, do you use IV glutathione? I do. I love IV glutathione. And how about IV vitamin C? Yeah, so we've just started doing IVs here sort of in the last few months more recently. Mm-hmm. Um, I've another naturopathic doctor onto my team, and I'm training her up in the Lyme work, and she's providing the IV therapy and we do Myers cocktails, so that's a mix of vitamins and minerals. Um, and then usually we'll do a glutathione push at the end. Mm-hmm. We'll do high dose C with a glutathione push. And we have some patients who are doing hydrogen peroxide by IV as well. Oh, interesting. And um, sometimes we'll alternate. They'll do hydrogen peroxide one visit and then a Myers the next visit. Mm-hmm. Fascinating. It's a nice combination. I think IV therapy helps so much just because the cells are getting flooded with nutrients. Yeah, exactly. And the brain too, right? And as well. And, yeah. you know, Lyme patients are notorious for, you know, digestive issues, gut issues. Exactly. And you bypass. bypass. Yeah. Oh. Yeah. Brilliant. Brilliant. I'm impressed. I want to go study with you. <laughs> <laughs> so tell me about your book and the Lyme diet. So the Lyme diet started out a patient handout. I was determined just to sit down on my patients and think, well, how should I eat and what should I do with nutrition? And right. I sat down to write them a nice two-page handout and it became the Lyme <laughs> diet, <laughs> which tends to be my way. But um, yes. premise is no sugar mm-hmm. and low to no gluten and dairy. Mm-hmm. And then talks about, you know, eating lean proteins, healthy fats, things of that nature to keep both blood sugar stabilized and also help support the adrenals. Right. Um, I think I have been the first to admit there's, there's nothing revolutionary in the Lyme diet. I mean, I haven't come up with anything that somebody else hasn't come up with along the way. I think mm-hmm. what makes it popular for folks is it's easy to understand and it helps people to understand why these things will help. Yes. And in particular, with a Lyme patient, how it relates to their experience. So I talk about sugar being an immune suppressant. And I, it, I say how one teaspoon can suppress immune function for 16 hours. Well, these people are fighting a chronic infectious illness. So that's going to get their attention rather than just saying no refined sugar, no gluten, no, no, no. So it talks about the inflammatory nature of gluten it talks about um, the possibility of having food sensitivity testing done and avoiding the, the personal allergens and sensitivities. Um, so, and it's, you know, it comes up with a, quite a few ideas of how to make it manageable, how to simplify the whole process. Right. It's such a critical piece. It can be so helpful or so detrimental a person's diet. Absolutely. And really my patients who do take that piece on they're much better. I mean, when people go off gluten, especially if they've been eating a fairly sort of, we'd call it here the standard American diet, I'm sure there's going to be listeners overseas, but, you know, wheat and dairy and sugar as much as it's just sort of hidden and naturally found in the everyday diet, 
if they really make the effort and go off those foods, right. tremendous how different they feel and in such a short period of time. And I always have said that I feel Lyme is so, you know, it's such a disempowering illness. Mm-hmm. And my patients and patients, I'm sure, everywhere feel a complete sort of sense of lack of control over the what's going on with their body. And yet their nutrition is something they can control. And so I think it really empowers them to be sort of proactive in their health. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's something that they can do to make a difference, and it'll make a difference fairly quickly. Brilliant. Now, talk talk about, so how do you help people through the psychosocial, the emotional, the mental what tools do you use to help people get through that? Because it really, it gets, it can get you at the spirit level and just drag you down. Absolutely. No, I, I see that and it's really hard. And I think one of the big challenges is how traumatized people f- feel by their history in the medical world. Mm. Um, so true. No one's really paying them attention and everyone's discounting what they're experiencing. And I think the hard part about that is because Lyme is such a, such a systemic illness, but it does impact every system of the body. But they go to specialists, and that specialist is only looking at one system, one part, one piece of the puzzle. So I think that's really got a lot of people feeling very beat up, if you will. So, I mean, there's a couple of things. One is, you know, I make sure to to reaffirm to them that depression, anxiety, irritability, I mean, these are all natural responses to what they're experiencing. These are all things that for someone who's in pain all the time, for someone who's not getting adequate sleep, for someone who's had a very traumatic experience in the medical world, it, it's natural for them to feel depressed and anxious. Um, and that that's quite an acceptable response. And then the other thing I say is that, you know, you also have to remember that these infections create anxiety, they create depression. Their symptoms just as real as knee pain. Absolutely. So, you know, it's sort of a double-edged sword. And so in terms of tools and modalities, I do a lot of amino acid therapy Mm. um, for trying to support people's neurotransmitters. Mm -hmm. If they're very anxious, I'll use GABA and theanine. Mm -hmm. If they're more depressed, I'll use 5-HTP. And then some of the sort of herbs that help calm the nervous system. So there are, there, are, there are tools and tricks that can help support the system along the way. And then I reassure them, you know, this is not you and this is not permanent. This is an impact that the illness is having on you at this point in time. Right. It's not you. You will come out of it. And let's back up. So first of all, thank you for that. Let's wrap that up in a nice little bow. Thank you. I think that's the common denominator I mean, I'm sure you've heard hundreds or if not thousands of Lyme stories at this at this point in in your treatment of the disease. And I'm struck by at, at some point how similar the stories are and then but how each is is individual is impacted a little bit differently. So mm-hmm. it's, you know, it's tempting to say, oh, well, all we have to do is this protocol or that protocol. But it doesn't they don't fit. This is not a cookie cutter disease. Right. Absolutely. And then how did how did Lyme come up on your radar? It's like out in California, I know there's plenty of Lyme out there, but in terms of awareness, it's not exactly top of the list. 
Yeah, and it's interesting. I mean, it was just a natural progression for me. I'm, I don't treat Lyme, you know, because I had Lyme myself or family members with Lyme. That wasn't my path. Mm-hmm. I was working more with autism and okay. working with autistic kids. And then I started working with some of the moms who were, you know, 30-something and had fibromyalgia and chronic fatigue and depression and all of these um, things going on in their own health. So I would start doing some testing. I've always been really into functional medicine, so testing to evaluate where the imbalances are in the system, where the stresses are. Mm-hmm. And, you know, so I'd look at adrenal testing and hormones and heavy metals and molds and and Lyme was one of the things that, that I was looking for and got, you know, positive results quite frequently. So then I just started learning more and more about it. And it's just grown from there, actually, really. Historically, there have been so few Lyme practitioners in Southern California. I know there are, there are a certain number now and very good ones, but not as many practitioners as you'd find on the East Coast. Right. Well, even here, it's pretty thin, pretty slim pickings. Oh. Not nearly as many as, as we would like. And most people have to travel. I mean, I'm in the central part of the state, uh, a very rural part, and the support group that I go to, uh, there I have people traveling down to the city, which is about four hours. I've also mm-hmm. people who'll travel all the way down to Virginia. Uh, so it's just, it's 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 not. They're not one. They're not Starbucks. There's not one on every corner. Right. Not yet. Yep. And uh, every once in a while, you hear an encouraging story where the the GP will have an open mind and say, "Oh, this you know sounds like Lyme disease. Let's get you on the antibiotics just in case." Yeah. But then you know, the, then you have the other side of thing where they've been to a thousand doctors and been told a thousand times, "Oh, it can't be Lyme disease." Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Or they get the standard testing done through, you know, LabCorp, one of the big sort of more generic labs that. Mm-hmm highly sensitive testing and they get an ELISA run and it's negative. So then it gets discounted at that point. Yes. Just just speaking with a microbiologist, uh, Dr. Holly Ahern, and she's out here in New York state. And I don't know if you've heard this about the, the bacteria, but it's as soon as it's being attacked, she says uh, 20% of it goes into the cyst form and hides. And then once the treatment is result, uh, removed, so the, whether the antibiotic or the herbs, then the bacteria kind of reconstitutes itself and comes out uh, and begins reproducing again. And that's that's why it's so difficult to treat, is every time you make an intervention and it feels threatened, it'll go hide, essentially you know, dig a burrow somewhere in the body and hide out until the dangers pass, and then it comes back out. So it takes iteration after iteration to reduce these numbers down to the level where it's not a problem anymore. Yeah, absolutely. And that's where I think, too, it's so important. I mean, speaking in terms of antibiotics now, um, it's so important to to have the different forms of the Borrelia covered. So there's a couple mm-hmm. of things I'm really big on in treatment. One is in treating Borrelia, there must be a medication for spirochetes, cell-wall-deficient forms, and cyst forms. Yes. When people are just getting doxycycline or just getting even, you know, amoxicillin or whatever medication it is, if those cyst forms aren't getting addressed, then you're going to just create the problem that you've just described. Absolutely. So or, that's really important. Or and if then the, the cysts are in the cartilage and there's no blood flow carrying the antibiotic to it. 
Yeah, I mean, it's definitely it's definitely a challenge. Yeah. Um, and then my other big thing is co-infections. <laughs> it's rare that I see someone that doesn't have at least one co-infection. So I think you can treat Lyme until the cows come home, but if there's a co-infection present, right. it's, it's really going to be hard to get somebody well. And that's that's so true. And in, in my mind, at this point, I've already started doing the mental translation. Whenever I say Lyme, I mean Lyme and everything that comes along with it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so you again, so you can be infected, and it can look like Lyme, and maybe it's not Lyme. Maybe it is Bartonella or Babesia or Mycoplasma or whatever. And so you, of course, you're going to test negative for Lyme, <laughs> but that that doesn't mean you don't have an infection. Right, that's absolutely true. And I do find, you know, in in my opinion, there are definitely false negatives on the co-infection testing. Yes. So I run very much based on symptom picture for the uh-huh. co-infection. Okay. And sometimes I'll do a therapeutic trial or almost like a challenge, if you will. Yes. There at the beginning of treatment, I'll have somebody start a herb for Borrelia and then wait 7 to 10 days, start a herb for Babesia, wait 7 to 10 days, and then start a herb for Bartonella. Uh-huh. Have them observe how they respond at each phase and take notes every day. And it's really interesting. I get lots of little diagnostic clues from that kind of process. Mm-hmm. And, you know, if they come back and say, oh, yeah, I started the Borrelia herb. That was fine. Maybe a little bit more joint pain, but no big deal. Oh, but I started the Babesia herb and my shortness of breath and my night sweats. And da, da, da. I spoke to a patient this morning who I did that kind of process with. And it wasn't even a Herbsheimer reaction for him. It was just, Oh yeah, in the very first few days on the Babesia herb, my headaches dropped from 100% of the time to 40% of the time. Right. My eye pain improved right away. So it doesn't even have to be a herx or a worsening of symptoms. Mm-hmm. Some people just, you know, get improvement that quickly too. But that tells me what co-infection is dominant and which co-infections are contributing to which symptoms. So what co-infections do you see out there in California? I see it, well, a lot of Babesia. Mm -hmm. I see Babesia and Bartonella. I mean, they're the two key ones in my view. Um, I also work with a lot of patients in Australia. Okay. And work with them long distance. And I see a lot of consultations. Yeah, I do. I work on phone or Skype. Oh, fabulous. Yeah. And um, there's a lot of Lyme down there and, and very little help and support and very little government recognition. There is. Do you know Karen Smith? No, uh-uh. I should introduce you to. She's uh she's has Lyme and is very active in the communities down there. Oh, right. Uh, and uh I'll just I'll make that connection. Yeah, thank you. You're welcome. So that's that's fabulous. Yeah, it's that that was the other eye-opening thing is it's, you know, I knew that it wasn't just a northeast disease and it was spread throughout the US, but that it's global. Uh, it was really eye-opening, and yeah. it, as many problems as we have here in the U.S. and in California with recognition and, and awareness, yeah. it's even a magnitude worse. Absolutely. I mean, there are countries where it is very much worse, and I think, I, and I can't remember them off the top of my head, but when I wrote The Beginner's Guide to Lyme, mm-hmm. like the section is sort of more on politics and history and talks a little bit about the global distribution and I mean, certainly Lyme has no no boundaries whatsoever. And so what other books do you have? Well, I have The Beginner's Guide to Lyme, which even though the name says it's a beginner's guide, it's not just for beginners, but it's a more comprehensive guide 
like I said, it does talk about the politics, the history. Um, it goes through the different kinds of tests and um, what testing to, to get. It goes through all the symptoms of Borrelia itself, of the co-infections. Um, and then it does go through a lot of treatment protocols and treatment options, both medication and naturopathic. And it's got a small section on nutrition, but obviously because I'd written a Lyme diet first, um, I've mostly covered that there. And then um, there's a book called Lyme Disease in Australia, which was really written to sort of, you know, specifically for that um, population. But there's a lot of overlap between that and the beginner's guide. And then I'm determined, bound and determined to start next week on my next book, which is going to be called Lyme Brain. Ah, brilliant. Because I think that's, you know, the cognitive and the psycho-emotional aspects are really, from what I, excuse me, from what I hear from my patients, that's what really troubles people the most. I have a lot of people who say, you know what, I can bear a lot of pain, I can handle the fatigue, but I can't handle losing my brain, you know? Yes. They get in their car and drive up the street and then can't remember where they set off for. It's amazing, I think isn't it? One of the, just psychologically, one of the hardest parts of the illness. Right. Yeah, that's that's part of our toolkit that we don't expect to to have taken away from us. Absolutely, so yeah. Suddenly, like that. Now, in your mind, I mean, obviously, from time to time, or maybe most of the time, I don't know. The 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 Borrelia makes its way into the brain itself, so that you know, if if your brain's infected, you expect there to be problems. But how about these secondary? you know, some of the endotoxins and things like that. How much do you think that plays a part in it? Look, I think it does. And I think, you know, the inflammatory response plays a huge part with cytokines and, and things like that. Mm -hmm. um, so, I, you know, I know that that plays a big role in the cognitive dysfunction. Um, but, you know, one of the reasons that I can see how much the infection plays in is by using medications like bicillin, for example, that crosses the blood-brain barrier. Mm -hmm. And, and that's the medication. I love it, and I prescribe it a lot. But that's the medication where I find people go, oh, thank you. I got my brain back. And so it's important to try and get as many, you know, as many options that, of medications that do cross the blood-brain barrier. Um, I don't do IV antibiotics. That's not in my scope of practice here. So if I have a patient that I really feel needs IV, I can refer them out to an MD. Right. But I can do injectables, and I use a lot of bicillin and find that very helpful. Um, and there's a couple of other oral antibiotics that do, you know, minocycline and whatnot, that do have some um, penetration at the blood-brain barrier. So there's that, but then it's also working on lowering inflammation, which comes down to diet. Yes. Comes down to different things like, you know, white willow herb, anti-inflammatory herbs, um, proteolytic enzymes, things of that nature can mm -hmm. help. And then also addressing the candida, because, I mean, candida will give you brain fog just as much as Borrelia. Yes, the whole gut thing, right? Yeah, so, you know, addressing that as well. And, you know, to your point, your question earlier about tools for the sort of psycho-emotional aspects, mm -hmm. I find neurofeedback to be a very valuable tool, ah. and that over to cognitive um, improvements as well. Now, what, how exactly do you do your neurofeedback? Is there an app that you send people to, or what? I mean, it's a, unfortunately, it's a modality that we do here in office, so it's limited to the people who can get physically get in here. Mm -hmm. But there's a lot of neurofeedback practitioners worldwide. I use a system called Zengar, which is out of Canada, and um, 
they have a website actually, zengar.com, that has a practitioner listing. Okay. So I've seen some really tremendous benefit from that um, as a tool. But I also, you know, I'm doing a lot of research in the whole area of neuroplasticity, which is fascinating to me. <laughs> oh, you know, the brain can compensate and, you know, areas of the brain that aren't really supposed to be for one, a specific purpose can take over right. activity for that purpose. So I try and without, you know, boring them too much, I try and talk to my patients about how their thought patterns can have so much of an impact um, in terms of, you know, if they have keep very positive thought patterns as hard as it might be for them to do that, they will strengthen the neural pathways mm-hmm. around that. So there's actual physiological responses to their thought process. Yes. And so I try and sort of just give people a little bit of education on that so they realize that as hard as it is, you know, deliberately thinking positive and deliberately training their mind um, to stay in a positive frame of mind, I mean, it's actually, it has physical benefit. It's not just a sort of slightly airy-fairy, think positive and you'll start to believe it. It's actually neurologically will strengthen that part of their brain. Yes. So troubled thoughts are another inflammatory source. Well, right, exactly. One of the practices I try to do every day is to write a thank you card. Mm-hmm. And that's my practice for forcing myself to be grateful and and uh, positive. Yeah, that's a good one. So that's, I start my day that way. That's great. Yeah. I know for me, I'm a runner, so I go out running most mornings and, you know, and I, I'm always, that's my prayer time as well. And I'm always sort of going through my gratitude then and what I'm thankful for and and then, you know, a practice that I adopt is, um, I call it daydreaming on purpose. <laughs> Seen it work in really profound ways in my life. You know, if you, so. if you make sure to daydream and, and keep, keep conjuring up thoughts of things that you want and desire and hope for and are moving towards, then that will help you to get there. Brilliant. Okay, I was just writing a note down. So, Dr. Nicola... Thank you. You've been very, very generous with your time. I appreciate it. And in wrapping up, I'd like to give you the opportunity to uh, talk about anything that we didn't cover that you'd like to mention because my questioning took you off on another tangent. And then uh, the second thing is your website and how people can contact you and all that kind of stuff. Yeah, absolutely. Um yeah, I don't know. Nothing is really coming to mind that I wanted to cover that you didn't cover. I think we covered some good territory. Um, our website is restoremedicine.com. It does not have an E on the end of restore. So it's R-E-S-T-O-R medicine.com. Um, we have a blog and an email newsletter. So if um, if people want to sign up on from our homepage, from our website, then anytime we do articles or, or blog posts, they'll get notified of that. Um, and that's just another way to sort of circulate more information to the lung community. Fabulous. I'll make sure to put that in the show notes. Excellent. Oh, thank you. You've been lovely. I appreciate it very much. So welcome. It's my pleasure. All right. Okay. Have a take great day. Bye bye. Cool interview. I, I what actually struck me was when she was talking about uh, Lyme brain. Yeah. And what about how it? 
Well, it actually, it's, it reminded me of um, some experiences I had in college, actually. Um, every year since my junior year, um, in the spring semester, in my second semester, almost like clockwork, there would be two to three weeks when I was just completely out of it. I was basically zombified. Really? Yeah. And I, it, it was really bad because I'm not used to defining myself as sick in terms of like brain function. I'm nor, I, I define myself as sick as like, oh, I got a stuffy nose. I got a sore, sore throat, things like that. Right. But it wasn't until after these two to three weeks would be up when I would wake up one morning and feel like, oh, I, I was actually sick the, almost the entire past month. Oh, and, so you kind of came out of it and realized, oh, I wasn't thinking clearly for the past month. Yeah, yeah, pretty much. Um, and it's it, it, <laughs> just I have a lot of sympathy. And it just it happened actually again last year, and you finally gave me some uh, Chinese herbs for it. And yes, we I did. Woke up the next morning, I think almost twenty four hours after I took it, and I was like, oh, I can think again. Exactly. Right. So I well, can most people experience something like that when they're drunk and their mental thinking goes, but usually we're feeling so good we don't care so much. <laughs> but I can't imagine uh, going through that all the time. In fact, uh, an interview I just did last night uh, with an author uh, of a fiction book called The Inverted Mask. Uh, he, he's going to be on a future podcast. Um, he had really, really terrible brain fog, and really that was his his primary symptom. And of course, like most Lyme stories, it took a while to get diagnosed. Uh, this was back in the 80s, I believe. But it can be absolutely debilitating. So it's not just, you know, you've got a headache or, you know, you have trouble remembering a word or something. Some people forget who they are. They forget where they are. They forget all kinds of things or just can't think at all. It's really, it's really amazing what the toxins and the bacteria itself can do to the brain. And that's speaking of that, I think, uh, Dr. McFadgen, her mix of kind of Western ability to prescribe some antibiotics and the knowledge of the, Chinese herbs and other herbal therapies is really kind of the mix of the the modern doctor, and we'll see more and more of that. So it's really encouraging to see that scope of practice available out there in California. Yes, All right. If you have feedback from us, from us or for us, <laughs> send us an email, please. At feedback at LimeNinjaRadio.com. I love getting your emails. Also, please like us on Facebook. Yeah, or visit our website for links and show notes. That's LimeNinjaRadio.com. And on the website, uh, you'll see a link there to get a free report on detox protocol. And it covers six of the basic detox protocols that you'll want to make sure that you're doing. Just subscribe to our email list and you'll get those sent to you. You can also subscribe to us on iTunes. And Stitcher. And check back with us next week. We've got our interview with Dive Girl Deb, who does bee sting therapy, bee venom therapy. It's a great interview. Uh, we had lots of noise in the background going with stuff, so I'm going to try to clean that up and make it a really great interview. She had a lot to say. She's a great advocate for bee venom. And speaking of venom, the last thing we need to do is a Lime Ninja fact of the day. Did you know if you spell ninja in Scrabble, you win forever? Lime 
Young Ninja Radio is a purely public broadcast and is not intended to be personalized medical advice for any individual's specific situation. Each individual's medical situation is unique, and Lime Ninja Radio should not be relied upon and/or considered as personalized medical advice. Lime Ninja Radio is not licensed to render medical advice and should be considered simply the public opinion of Lime Ninja Radio and its guests. Recommendations on specific treatment options are not intended to address any listener's particular medical situation. As always, contact your physician before considering any new treatment.